I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live at Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, or catch up with the best bits here on the podcast. Coming up on today's episode, Jersey goes to the polls this week. Just got to think, we talk a lot about the politics of the people across the channel in France, the people trying to cross the channel in small boats. But what about the people who live in the channel? So we take a look at the politics of Jersey, Guernsey and Sark. I have to say, I knew nothing. It's really interesting. Uh, before that, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Tuesday, it's... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, all the talk of uh, going back to the 1970s. Here are two crackers of the 1970s. It's Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Daddy. <laughs> Good morning. And David Aronovich. Morning, David. Meet a couple of what? <laughs> crackers. You got cut off. Meet a couple, couple of, of crackers. Meet a couple crackers. of crackers. Couple of crackers. Oh, I see. I, I, have you ever thought that when you're cut off in the middle of a joke like that, the best thing to do is not to go back to it? <laughs> like a, like <laughs> a firework. Um, uh, no, no. And, and incidentally, in, in, uh, and exactly, and incidentally, Danny has got a real case against you here because he's significantly, actually, in this case, in Seth, younger than I am. Um, so it's really not fair to him, and he looks younger and <laughs> in every way. Now, if I was to go back to the 1970s, Matt, I and this is this is it. I would walk into the Manchester University Union to play table football while Steve Harley is on the jukebox. That's what I'd do. <laughs> That's what. Uh, in fact, neither of you from the seventies at all. I've, I've, I've promoted you both. I was at school. School through the seventies. Yeah, and uh, d- well, obviously, I don't, I don't know what being from the seventies actually means. No, but exactly. And I was obviously, yeah, I was obviously around in the seventies, but I was at no, school. No, no. So this is. No, this I is... am from. The, I am from the seventies, Matt. It's. It, it's. I mean, I'm also from the eighties, and of course, fabulously from the twenty twenties. I mean, as well, uh, but... although, although strictly speaking, also the nineteen fifties. But let's not. Let's not. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Let's not dwell on that. Um, but there's a, so the reason the reason for this, and this is an interesting uh, question that I uh, so I, I po- in fact I, I posted this on Twitter already. So I don't know all the talk of going back to the 1970s. Does that work? 
And I said you needed to be well into your 60s to have any real concept of what it was like. Uh, to lots of, to several generations, the 70s is a distant time of cool music, films of fashion. And lots of people, but I'm 54 and I remember the bins not being collected. So, okay, so you need to be in your 50s. But it is still a very long time ago. And does all this sort of rhetoric work? Well, there are two things about it. First of all, obviously, it doesn't work in terms of lots of the electorate don't don't know what it means. Even and you know, even though I'm about to turn sixty, I was actually you know a school child through most of the 1970s. But secondly, one of the reasons why the 1970s happened was because people voted for it. So uh, in repeated elections, <laughs> in repeated elections, when, uh, you know, Ted Heath, for example, asked who governs Britain, the, the choice was, well, not you, if you can't manage the relationship with the trade unions. And it was only when that approach really hit the buffers right at the end of that decade that um, that Margaret Thatcher won. And even then, she didn't win by a lot. A lot. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's worthwhile remembering that those political battles over trade unions fighting for um, preservation of their living standards against rising costs, um, the government doesn't always win those battles, and uh, politically. You're right. I mean, the, the, we had four general elections in the 1970s. We've only matched that again uh, since in, I mean, in this decade. We do have in front of us, it has to be said, um, the example of what happens when governments don't win making that appeal. Um, It's a disaster and people end up chasing uh, wage rises. Um, You know, basically what's happening with the rail strike is one set of workers is striking against everybody else. And what they're they're trying to do is push up everybody else's rail travel costs, um, at which point everyone else will say, well, in which case I'm going to charge you, the railway worker, more to eat in the restaurant or more to um, pay for your food costs at home or more to pay for your washing powder. Uh, That's what will happen. And everyone will chase up the costs until eventually we realise that that won't work anymore. And then everyone will be unemployed. And that we've been through that experience and it would be dispiriting to do it again but there are lots of things that we experience that people do you know do seem like like the sort of chase to establish some great global alternative to capitalism we've tried that as well and people have forgotten what a disaster that turned out to be as well is going back to the would you relish going back to the to the old days david um, I love Danny's idea that people voted for the 70s, um, as if on the ballot paper you could have said, no, let's skip straight to the 80s. <laughs> 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 I, I, well, miss, I miss this one out. Though I think I think I think I know what he I think I know uh, what he meant. Um, one of the things I've been very interested in uh, as somebody who really does remember this time, I remember the three day week of 1973, the power cuts. I remember the winter of discontent incredibly well. I remember the advent of, of Margaret Thatcher. Um, British Lale and all this kind of stuff and I was I cut my early journalistic teeth on the end of this kind of period going into the miners strike in uh, in 84-85 and what I thought was was really dispiriting this week has been the return to kind of really dead old rhetoric I mean as if people as if as if it related to people anymore and to the old kind of dead old memes really the thing is and Dan is obviously absolutely right the problem with getting into an inflationary spiral as opposed to 
uh, experiencing a bit of inflation, um, is that essentially you build into your expectations, into your behaviours, the notion that prices will go up and you charge accordingly, you plan accordingly, and you demand accordingly. Uh, and that leads you eventually to 12, 13, 14, 15, 16% inflation. And that's not funny. Um, it's extremely disruptive and so on. But the problem is, given how long it is since we had that level of inflation, and given how it's caused, you're in a, the business of persuading people, of telling them about it, of having the argument properly about it so that they can see it for themselves and make sure that you're kind of adjudicating it as fairly as you can. So immediately to kind of slam the unions as being kind of sort of terrible old left-wing people who are only out for themselves, for instance, on one side, um, is, uh, and if we're talking about governmental responsibility, it won't work. It's not an act of yeah. persuasion. It doesn't get rail workers to say, mm, let me kind of think about this. Maybe I don't want to do It this. is a bit true of the RMT, though, David. I mean, you know, the, 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 the phrase you use is true of them. Um, they, they are out for themselves because it's hard to believe that when you look at, you know, the distribution of wages to everybody in the economy that you would light upon railway workers as the group of people that's uh, differentially worse off compared to everybody else. And 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 secondly, it is due to some uh, sort of uh, bloody-minded theory about the way the society is organised, which completely doesn't work. So while I'm while I agree with you completely, because I'm always for uh, reasonable dialogue. Um, I suppose this does meet my kind of uh, view that that I have, a, I have a sort of strong impatience for the line of for the position of the RMT because I don't I, I I don't think ultimately that it's reasonable and and I've also got strong impatience for those people who say um, the government should should uh, be trying should be trying to settle this. What they mean by that, and they should say that if they mean it, is the government should try and buy off this strike. Um, and I don't think the government should try and buy off the strike. Um, uh, yeah, but the thing, sorry, to, to, I just wanted to, uh, to add to that, to add, Matt. Um, what you would, what you're saying, would be true if we had the same kind of trade union legislation as we did back in the 70s and 80s. But the fact is that in order to get to a strike, the RMT's members have to agree with it. And by the time you get to, so it's not as if it's just kind of the old days. You get a, you know, you get your union leadership. They'd be very militant. They'd go out to a yard where everybody had to put up their hands, etc. They'd vote for the strike, and then everybody else would be picketed out. That's not what they do now. So you're are in the act of the persuasion with the RMT's uh, uh, yeah, own members. People vote for all sorts of unreasonable things. They voted for Donald Trump, right? So just because they voted for it in a, in a, in, a, in an election um, doesn't mean to say that they that that they that I have to think they're so wrong. No, 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 a whole no, bunch no, of them are wrong. No, of course you do. But you, but but as with Donald Trump supporters or some of them, at any rate, you're in the you're in the business of persuading them of the alternative vision that you have and why it's a mistake. And not only that. By so doing, you've also got to persuade succeeding groups of potential strikers, etc., why this would be a mistake. And you've got to show that, as I said, you're adjudicating it fairly. My, my so, your point, so, you're, so, you're, so your point earlier, which is absolutely right, uh, about how uh, a relatively well-paid group who are very well organised, like rail workers, can essentially are the sort of people who will be able to have an effect through strike action, which will put up prices, etc. But it, the, but classically, the poorer paid workers or the low paid workers will be the people in the end who suffer because they're 
on, on the whole, their strike action won't count. They won't be able to do it. They won't be that organised. Trade unions are much less organised across the piece than they were in the 70s and 80s and so on. And so actually what you have, and you're absolutely right in this, is a total inequality of suffering as a consequence of this. But that's got to be argued through. You can't just do it from a position of condemnation. No, one of my main methods of persuasion is resistance, right? The, the, the most important thing is that uh, I, I can... Every, anyone can assert... And let's face it, n- nobody who works on the railways is so incredibly well paid or stay or in such a stable job that that they don't feel with with a perfect reason that they that it that for all the hard work they do it wouldn't be a good thing if they earn more money and they were more stable. And I'm sympathetic to anybody who feels that. Everybody feels that, you know, however well off they are. And so um, I completely understand why they feel that, and I completely understand why they they're taking whatever power they've got to try to impress that upon other people. And I will try to persuade them it's it's a bit antisocial, but the other and and in the in the most temperate and moderate and intelligent way that I can. But the other thing to do is to simply say no. This method that you're using to prevent everyone from going to work in order that you can exploit the monopoly power of the railways uh, um, uh, by causing maximum inconvenience to boost your wages at the expense of other people will not work. Uh, and because we're insistent that it will not, and that is the most important way of making a persuasive argument. One of the things, I mean, particularly because of the phrase, uh, the, the, the dead rhetoric that's being used, one of the things that struck me is I spoke to the guy from um, the head of Network Well uh, a little bit earlier on, who actually laid out for me anyway, far more clearly what the issues are and the sticking points uh, and the particular sp- uh, examples of uh, working practices, which the RMT are wedded to, which lots of people in modern Britain would think were uh, perhaps ripe for reform. But actually, the government's not even really doing that. They're not really making the case. I suppose that's the point, isn't it? That they're not, the government isn't really persuading people either. It's just going, oh, it's the 1970s and it's Labour's strikes. No, I think lots of people just don't understand what all of this is about. Yeah, Tory MPs are going out with the hashtag thank you care across this one. And it's just kind of, you know, there are embarrassments for the Labour Party. And it's certainly so, for instance, you've got the Scottish Labour leader on the picket line, whereas at the same time, uh, shadow cabinet members are being told to keep off the picket line because Labour's position wants to be we are on the side of the ordinary public and we want to see this settled rather than we're on the side of the strikers or we're on the side of the employers, which is very sensible position, but is really difficult to maintain in a situation of polarisation because a lot of your side actually quite like to go on picket lines and you know yeah. make make fists make little fists etc and say we're with the workers because you know that's what that's what they feel emotionally and that's another way in which you kind of find yourself whizzing back to the rhetoric of the 70s with total polarization as if we didn't have in this country some very common set of attitudes and part of the other side part of the problem we have frankly is that since nobody believes a bleeding word this government says or trusts it in any kind of a way, every time it tries to kind of it tries to polarize the arguments on, it doesn't really work. It actually makes things worse. Well, it's not my chosen form of rhetoric, this thanks care stuff and everything, because I do agree with it. It's a bit childish. Um, but it's not, you know, but I don't and I and I, you know, it's a bit tiresome. And I of course prefer people to make um decent arguments but let's not be naive about that i don't what what people say when they say the government should do more settle the the railway strike is they should concede more and i'm not sure that's the correct strategy but isn't it doesn't it point to the 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 general tenor of this government that nothing is their fault they are um they are they are new nothing that happened under theresa may or david cameron had anything to do with them 
the, uh, the these strikes are Keir Starmer's fault. The energy bill rises are Ukraine's fault. They, um, they, they, they appear yes. to be not in any way masters of their own destiny. I'm very critical of that whole strand, but the the uh, but this but this strike isn't their fault. That, then we ought to be able to make that intellectual intellectual distinction. But, right? de- but if it's not people, their fault, it's definitely say- not Keir Starmer's fault. Well, it's actually, it's actually, it is at least partly the Labour, the labor movement's fault, uh, and certainly there's a lot of confusion <laughs> in the Labour movement about whether they wish to encourage it. But I do, I agree. Let's not get that down this route because I would agree with you very strongly and with David that it is a diversion to say to try to politicise that as though it was all about Keir Starmer. It's not. It's not really about Keir Starmer, no, right? That, so that, I, that, I don't. I don't. I don't want to get myself. I don't want to get this myself. Might be the first time ever, Daddy. But I'm going to have to disagree with you. This this rail strike is not Keir Starmer's fault. Right. He didn't cause the strike. That's true. The Labour movement believes that you can bid up wages in this way. Um, And I do think that by telling the government that by by urging the government to negotiate with the uh, strikers, um, he's encouraging that activity. So I think it's a mistake. But 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 I would say this. Essentially, your point is correct. Of course, it's, he didn't create the strike. I'm not saying that. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to um, by by saying I'm not saying that imply more than I imply. I do. Just, I am critical of his position. I am critical of his position. I do think the labour movement is in the wrong position of it. But I agree that approaching it through the whole, you know, thanks, Keir, and pretending it's all about the Labour Party is a bit silly, right? But I, but I, but I, but I, but I thought we were all going to disagree for a minute. No, but I do, but I, but I, but at the same time, uh, I would dis- I would also disagree that this is the government's fault. I think this is the railway workers' fault. I think the railway workers think that they can, and the railway union's fault, and I think they think that they can yeah, bid yeah, up yeah. their wages in this way, and they can't be allowed to do that. And anyone who's urging them is urging us to settle with them is urging us to give into that which will create other people doing the same thing right let's draw a line under that before we fall out again uh let's talk about what's happened to emmanuel macron in france uh he's lost his majority in parliament he's got to try and cobble together some sort of deal so he can get anything done i mean and lots of people in france would be saying it's because he took it all for granted uh didn't campaign went to ukraine for three days um, what can we what can we read into all of this, David? I think you can read into it the fact that the French electorate have worked out how to get what they want out of an election system, which was designed to prevent them. I mean, uh, that, that that's what I read into it. We know we knew from the first round of the presidential voting uh, before it's kind of narrowed down to two that there are significant forces on the far right and on the far left that actually deserve parliamentary representation because many people vote for them. But we also know that the weight of the French voters lay within the centre and the centre-right, and that is reflected in the votes for uh, Macron's party and for the Republican uh, party. And I would therefore expect them to have to do what everybody else has to do except in places like Britain and America, which is to do some deals about what it is they're going to have to do in order to get their programme through because they haven't actually got a majority of voters. And we knew that anyway because we know that from the presidential election. So I, I, I mean, we love in this country... A bit, and partially the French encourage us in this to say that everything and 
anything is a disaster for the French president and that France <laughs> is a basket case, when in fact France has done considerably better than we have over the course of the last decade or so, uh, etc. And so my prediction is, for what it's worth, is that he will manage this. Now, we need him to manage it uh, as well, because when it comes to things like foreign policy and so on, Macron's instincts and those of uh, probably of the uh, of, uh, of section of the Republicans are far more robust when it comes to things like Ukraine and Putin for all the criticism that we've put against him than those of, say, the opposition parties, either Marine Le Pen or the far left parties in, in the French parliament. So in addition to thinking that this will be what happens, we also, I think, have to hope that that's what happens from a British perspective. Danny, are we, uh, I suppose David's right, isn't it? Even if people who don't like the idea of the far left or the far right, if there is support for them, then they should be in the parliament. When I saw the whole for the whole mess, I thought, thanks, Keir. No, I didn't really. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> um, so I, 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 I think, in addition to Dave, David's points, I basically agree with, but I think, in, uh, uh, particularly the last one about uh, Macron's importance in France. But I, I do worry about the rise, you know, uh, sort of obvious point, but I rise worry about the rise of populism on left and right in France and in Europe, as, as I have in this country. Um, I think it's um, concern, you know, it was concerning in the presidential election. And this was the kind of manifestation of itself. It's very good that in the end, uh, in the presidential election, when people are given a binary choice, he still managed to win quite convincingly. But when people aren't, it is worrying that um, we've ended up in this position. And I worry that it'll go you know that it'll go further, and that at some point it will not be dominant in the presidential election. So, I, you know, it was these these are these are worrying elections, the worrying moments. Daniel Finkelstein and David Rodovich there, and of course you can read them both at the Times over week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the politics of the Channel Islands. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, we're going channel hopping today. Fire up the jingle. Times Radio Election 2022. Jersey. Yes, Jersey goes to the polls this week, which got us thinking. We talk a lot about the politics of our friends across the channel over in France, as we have been this week following the elections there. And we talk a lot about the politics of people trying to cross the channel in small boats. But what about the politics of the people who live in the channel? Places like Jersey, Guernsey, Alderney, Sark, Brecu, Jetu and Herm. Well, the Ballywick of Jersey and Guernsey are known as Crown Dependencies, where they are self-governing and the Queen is the head of state, but they are not part of the UK. Crown dependencies get to decide how they run their political, legal and economic system. So what we thought we'd do is take a walk through them, find out a bit more about it. Well, tomorrow, the states of Jersey go to the polls to elect the members of their assembly. The last time Jersey was big in the headlines here was when we were about to go to war with France about fish. Two Royal Navy patrol vessels are being sent to Jersey to monitor the situation after a row erupted with France over post-Brexit fishing rights. Around 60 French fishing boats have taken part in a protest outside Jersey's largest port. They have stuck to agreements made after Brexit and issued licences to French boats that can prove a history of fishing these waters. Boris Johnson is to meet the French President Emmanuel Macron this weekend to try to defuse growing tensions over post-Brexit fishing rights. Yeah, it was all it was all about Brexit last time round. Uh, well, Fiona Potini, deputy editor of the Ballywick Express, was our war correspondent uh, before, and joins me now. Hi, Fiona. <laughs> Good morning, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. We've also got Robert McRae, the deputy bailiff of Jersey. Morning, Robert. Good morning, Matt. I suppose if if this is an exercise in trying to understand things, let's start at the very beginning, Robert. What what is what does being the deputy bailiff of Jersey mean? Well, um, Jersey has a bailiff and a deputy bailiff. Uh, we are both appointed by um, the Queen, uh, our sovereign, or as we call her in Jersey, our Duke, because she is heir to the uh, Duke of Normandy, uh, William the Conqueror. And there are two main parts of the role. Uh, firstly, we sit in court. I'm Deputy Chief Justice and equivalent to an English High Court judge. And the second part of the role is that we um, preside over our Parliament. Uh, the states as an independent, impartial, non-voting chair of um, that parliament. So that's how uh, that's your job, uh, Fiona. Uh, tell us about the politics then of this week and the elections. How how do they work? So Jersey will be heading to the polls tomorrow. Uh, voting opens at eight a.m. We've had a bit of a, an interesting election. Um, this one, um, it's an entirely different system. Jersey's ripped up the way in which politics works several times, and we've done it again. Um, so to just give you a, a brief history, previously um, in our states' assembly, we had three different categories of politician. We have what's known as the constables, so they're effectively kind of mayors of each parish of the island, each area of the island. We had senators who have an island-wide mandate, so they represent everyone on the island and everyone was able to vote for them and then we had deputies so you had deputies for each parish for each area kind of I guess closest equivalent to an MP and what we've decided to do this time around we're keeping the constables so they're still so the mayors effectively are still able to vote in the state's assembly we've got rid of those who have an island-wide mandate the senators 
Um, and what we've done, instead of having each parish um, have a deputy, we've changed up the island into districts because what was uh, noticed was that some areas are more sparsely populated and effectively some residents would have a vote that carried more weight. Um, so we now have um, nine equal districts um, and people can cast a vote for deputies for those. And what's come with this kind of tearing up of the electoral system is kind of a bit of a, a party renaissance. We did sort of, Jersey's had a history of um, having parties uh, that, that sort of goes all the way back to the 18th century. We had uh, the, uh, the what were known as the roses and the laurels, so it's sort of broadly speaking, you know, conservatives versus sort of the liberals. And um, parties have come and gone. Many people think Jersey is just all about independent candidates. But I suppose really they, they, they came back in force in, in 2012 with um, the, the birth of the Reform Party, uh, which came out of frustration that there wasn't a strong kind of left voice in the island. So there was one party um, which uh, currently has five uh, representatives, five deputies um, in the uh, state's assembly. They're obviously hoping to secure more votes, but we've also had um, this time round the creation of three more parties, which has been quite interesting, varying levels of success. One of them is called the Jersey Alliance. They marketed themselves as the party of government because they were formed after the government was created. It's uh, our government um, is a ministerial system. And they said, vote for us if you want the government to continue with what it's doing essentially which they've sort of moved away from that messaging now as they noticed it wasn't the most popular thing to say stick with us we'll give you more <laughs> of the same um, and then we've had two others we've got the jersey liberal conservative so sort of traditional conservative party probably if most broadly equivalent to in the uk and then uh, the progress party which i would i would roughly align to um the lib dems but interestingly even though we've had the creation of these parties, there was lots of excitement with um, lots of new parties coming with this new form of elections. <laughs> that enthusiasm lapsed slightly. And I think some parties struggled to get enough candidates to uh, stand under their banner. So already we have a coalition. We have a conservative Lib Dem coalition um, of the, the Jersey Liberal Conservatives, the JLC and the Progress Party. Um, so it'll be quite interesting to see um, whether Islanders are interested in parties, whether they really, really support them. We know that the, the left party, Reform Jersey, they have a strong base in uh, sort of town centre area. Um, but whether or not they'll be able to broaden that appeal across the island, that's going to be very interesting as well. Um, but ultimately, I think a lot of uh, the, I suppose, the lack of enthusiasm around um, the parties is that everyone knows the, the problems that are facing Jersey as an island. And I think everyone's broadly speaking with the same voice. We, we do have um, what everyone's talking about at the moment, a housing crisis. I mean, the, the average price of a family home over here, a, a three bed is £860,000. So it would take three people um, to affordably service a mortgage on an average salary. So everyone knows that's something that needs to be dealt with. We've got a bit of a brain drain going on. There's various sectors facing a lot of uh, recruitment difficulties as a result of um, Brexit and all also lots of people going home as a result of COVID. We know that um, we're going to have issues uh, with healthcare in future because of this recruitment crisis, because we're losing a lot of people. We know that the uh, what's known as the dependency ratio, so the number of people working to kind of look after our older generations, that, that's going to be very skewed. I mean, 1991, 
we had um, our largest group on the island was those aged 20 to 29. And to compare that to now, our largest group is those in their 50s and 60s. So, I mean, all the all the parties are, even though they have different kind of uh, points on the political spectrum, they are broadly speaking with one voice. We all know know the problems. Um, so I think that's that sort of contributes to that lack of enthusiasm, um, perhaps for party politics. But of course, we'll see. Tomorrow will uh, we'll tell us uh, <laughs> what we need to know about whether or not they're going to be a proper success and if they're properly back for good in Jersey or not. Uh, and Robert, how does Jersey sort of see itself on the world stage? And how does it look more towards Britain, more towards France, to, to other Channel Islands? How does it sort of sit in the in the sort of immediate global position? Well, um, as uh, you said in your introduction, Jersey's been um, self-governing for um, since twelve oh four, actually, for eight hundred years. So um, traditionally, we've um, that means looked after our own affairs. We've got our own courts, so we make our, our own laws. Um, but there's always been an international dimension um, to Jersey life. Jersey's been a, a trading entity in its own right for, for centuries. And certainly with the um, advent of uh, Brexit, we are developing our international personality. And uh, with the consent of the UK, uh, entering into agreements, um, mainly in the financial area, but also Jersey wants to be um, a good global citizen. Uh, when, for example, we um, uh, confiscate um, monies in money laundering cases, we ensure that we repatriate the funds to the uh, countries concerned under asset sharing agreements. Uh, so generally post-Brexit, um, Jersey is becoming a more outward looking uh, jurisdiction uh, keen to develop its um, international role so as to promote and protect the island's interests. So, so Jersey Jersey was part of the EU through the UK, even though it's not technically part of the UK? Um, yes, that's right. We were, a, um, we were a third country and we were only treated as being part of a member state for very, very limited purposes, principally in relation to uh, free movement of goods. We were part of the EU, but we were affected by the um, withdrawal of the um, UK from the EU um, in uh, many ways similar to the effect on uh, people in the UK. Well, of course, we have no vote in that because, of course, we're not part of the uh, <laughs> you were part UK. Of it, yeah, you were sort of caught in the, uh, in the slipstream. Of it. Uh, Fiona, we need to ask you about the war with France. Uh, we spoke to you a lot at the time. <laughs> Uh, is it? I don't know. Is that war still raging? Uh, whatever happened with that uh, dispute over fishing? Well, <laughs> it did slightly fizzle away. I mean, I can't say anyone's still getting flashbacks if they see Mouls Marinière on the menu. But um, it, there, there's there's uh, sort of discussions going on in the background still. So just to kind of uh, catch people up, um, obviously that the, when the French boats swarmed the harbour, overlooked by the two Hartlepool by-election naval <laughs> um, uh, boats. We uh, we saw, t- sort of two layers of anger from the French. So some of them were upset that they hadn't got a license to fish in Jersey's waters, and some of them were upset that they had got a license, but there were conditions attached to it. So what we've done, we're, we're we've sorted the number of licenses. So. Those who are definitely going to get one have now got their license. Anyone that was upset that they they hadn't got one, that's been resolved. The part that's on pause is the conditions attached to the licenses. And those are the discussions still going on in the background with the help of the uh, European Commission. Um, And that's the part that's obviously going to be slightly more controversial because... What Jersey also saw in the uh, the Brexit uh, deal, I suppose, there, there was an opportunity in that 
in redrawing up a, a sort of way of managing its waters. It could also think about things like sustainability. I mean, there are lots of big trawlers that are coming up, you know, and ripping up the seabed. And we now know um, and have a greater and deeper appreciation of the, the vital contribution of things like seagrass. So we've got to think about, you know, do, can we do things to uh, stop trawling and dredging to the extent that it was happening before to be able to renew some of that sea life? Um, so that was some of the rationale for the, for the conditions. But obviously that will have an economic impact on those who, who were fishing and who were using these methods. Um, so that's the part that is still being ironed out. Fortunately, we, you know, we've had a change of minister in France. We haven't heard anything um, from our fishing minister over there by way of uh, sort of threats to pull the plug on our electricity or <laughs> any kind of financial sanctions. I think Justine Benas so far has been quite quiet on that front, but but we'll see how things they've, go. They've got the, they've got their own troubles to pick through after their own elections. Absolutely, there, <laughs> uh, their own elections there at the weekend. And so, uh, just just finally, Finn, depending on what happens, I mean, just could you have a sort of rainbow coalition? It sounds like because what well, there were hundred thousand people on Jersey electing uh, going to the polls uh, tomorrow. With all of these new parties, is it a, 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 a possibility that you end up with lots of people from a whole load of parties and nothing that quite forms a, a big enough group to have a majority? I think that's inevitable. Yeah. So Jersey has <laughs> always been um, quite independent. As I say, we, we're only really getting parties now. So to form a council of ministers, the chief minister has always had to pick from a selection of people um, right. on the political spectrum. Yeah. And no party at the moment will be able to get enough people in, um, I don't believe, um, in order to have um, a full kind of uh, party political uh, sort of ministerial coverage there. So there will have to be some kind of coalition, I'm sure. And when do you, just, when do you, when you get the results, when do we find out what's happening? happened? Uh, late tomorrow night, we're thinking. Uh, we're assuming uh, probably around midnight. Oh, we'll try and get you back we on Thursday. Try and get you back on Thursday and find out what's happened. Uh, Fiona Pottini, de- deputy editor of the Ballywick Express, and Robert McRae, deputy bailiff of Jersey. Uh, thank you for talking to us about Jersey. Now let's turn our attention to Guernsey. It's a small of the two main islands in the Channel Islands. They don't have elections tomorrow, but. They did have them a couple of years ago in 2020, and like Jersey's tomorrow's, political parties stood for the first time. James Faller is the editor of the Guernsey Press, who can talk us through the politics of Guernsey now. Morning, James. Hello, Matt. So, um, paint a picture for us. Uh, how does how does politics in Guernsey work? Um, yeah, it's interesting listening to Fiona. Uh, Jersey seems to be doing the exact opposite of what Guernsey uh, did in, in preparation for our 2020 uh, election. So... We previously had um, 40 uh, deputies split through um, through districts, so not on a parish basis, typically these sort of fairly equal-sized districts, and that was okay, except there was an obsession from certain islanders that they wanted to vote against uh, certain people, and so uh, island-wide voting became the thing. So the 2020 election, which was carried out post-COVID in October 2020, um, featured... Uh, 110 plus candidates uh, for 30, 40 seats, and um, yeah, and, and that was the first time we saw political parties coming into coming into Guernsey. It was first time, certainly since the 60s. Um, and 110 candidates is an awful lot. Given it was about 65,000 people who live on live on the island. Um, and how how does that work then? Uh, party politics coming into it. Did that what happened in the in the outcome? So at party politics in Guernsey in 2020, we had three parties, um, one of which was a rather loose coalition of, of independents who said they would operate as a, as a party. 
Um, the so one party got, I think, five members um, through. Uh, the the Partnership of Independence got more than that, but their leader didn't become the chief minister, uh, and so that party is, is now effectively dissolved. Um, and so you know we carry on with a bit of a mishmash. We have some parties, but essentially we're an independent system. It's not ministerial or executive government, so it's a committee and consensus based. Um, but what we have seen is rather a polarisation of, um, of politics in Guernsey. And there are, quite often on many of the big issues, there are two, two camps in Guernsey where, where, there, where one holds sway, uh, one probably being slightly more right-wing sway over the um, over the more perhaps socially conscious group but yeah so politics is uh, is interesting in Guernsey at the moment in a way that it never has quite been before <laughs> um, we, um, let's talk, I feel like we need to talk about tax people think of Guernsey as the Channel Islands uh, generally being a tax haven uh, and so on what, what and when you talk about you know on, on key issues it tends to sort of drift uh, to the right is that one of is that one of the dividing lines in politics in Guernsey? Um, so, so the, the the tax haven perception um, is is very much a kind of UK and overseas construct. So in, in Guernsey terms, you know, we uh, operate, we have our own tax issue uh, domestically, uh, and at the moment our government is talking about needing to raise an extra £85 million a year uh, to cover the demographic, uh, the implications of demographic time bomb, which is not proving to be particularly popular. Uh, so we, we have our own tax issues. I mean, in terms of the way that we are perceived, a lot of work has, been, has gone into um, shifting, uh, shifting the perception of Guernsey away from tax, because it's not solely about tax, clearly. I mean, Guernsey's got a lot more to offer than that, but there is... There are also tax implications, but I think that the, the idea of solely being about tax is, uh, is probably moved on. It's interesting. So, so the issue that Fiona was talking about, the sort of slightly brain drain issue, and uh, if the population is getting older and there aren't a generation of other people working through to earn the money to pay the tax to fund the services for older people, that, that sounds like that's an issue on Guernsey as well. Well, absolutely. Every, every issue that Fiona raises as being issues for, for Jersey is an issue for Guernsey. House prices, population, um, all the brain drain, all these matters, demographics, they all very much count for us. Um, but our issue obviously being smaller than Jersey, and Jersey has grown its population. You know, when I was a lad, the Jersey population was about 80,000. Now it's at more than 100,000. Uh, again, when I was a lad, the Guernsey population was 60,000. Now it's just a couple of thousand higher. So we've been very much more restrained in terms of growing our population, uh, but obviously managed to successfully grow our economy. However, that's now a real challenge, and we're going to need more workers coming into Guernsey to keep ourselves afloat with the demographic uh, concerns. We need to find somewhere to house them, and um, uh, and our roads are going to be, uh, you know, our infrastructure is going to be struggling in dealing with, you know, if we had an extra five, 10,000 people, an awful lot of people would not like it. So Guernsey's, you know, in a, you know, in a sweet spot size-wise, but uh, that spot is perhaps getting less sweet as, uh, as time goes on. And in terms of the Guernsey press, uh, tell me about that, because we've got 65,000 people. That's a sort of 
the size of a of a of a decent town. Is it was it a daily paper? I mean, how's the and how how are the the, the economics of print versus digital working out having a captive audience does that mean that the print has lasted a bit longer than in other places yeah i think that's very fair um we do benefit from having a rather traditional audience and certainly we sell more copies every day than some of the more significant uh, towns uh, in in the uk um obviously the the digital uh, pressures on us are brought about really more through um, more through age uh, and fashions than um, uh, than island concerns. Everybody's in. Yeah. We can justify ourselves as what was a national newspaper for sixty five thousand people. Uh, however, the, you know, nowadays you know that a fair percentage, majority of those under forty five, uh, perhaps unlikely to buy a newspaper. So uh, the digital yeah. uh, pressure and, and that balancing act is one that we have to be acutely aware of. What's the one issue, just before I let you go, if you put it on the front page, absolutely flies. What's the thing that really gets people like fired up on Guernsey? Oh, one issue. Um, one thing that always gets people going is bonfires. Um, <laughs> today, uh, today, though, we have a um, we had a significant drugs case uh, in in, a, in the Royal Court yesterday, so that uh, that certainly gets people going. And there's a uh, conversation about moving towards considering decriminalising. Uh, so uh, that's that debate is coming up in our states, in our government um, yeah. next week. Yeah. Uh, so it's some distance away, but I think yeah. drugs is also a big issue. I'll tell you what, I'm in a local WhatsApp group and there's always people talking about bonfires in there. Somebody's going, you know, who's got a bonfire? I've just put my washing out. This is the stuff that people care about. James, it's really good to speak to you and painting a picture of, of uh, Sir James Fallis, the editor of the Guernsey Press. Finally, then, we hop on the speedboat now. We're heading uh, to Sark. Sark is part of the Bailiwick of Guernsey, but has its own set of laws and its own parliament. Christopher Bowman is the Seigneur of of Sark. Christopher, is that right? Uh, Yes, indeed. Seigneur. Seigneur. French. Seigneur. Exactly. So, first of all, what what does that involve? Um, Well, these days, precious little. Um, (laughs) uh, I... (laughs) I hold the uh, fief of Sark uh, directly from the crown. And uh, that really sort of makes us unique. Whereas Guernsey used to do that in uh, in all of its parishes, um, but they've given that up and uh, we've still maintained it. So how, how, how many people, what is the population of Sark right now? It's uh, a good question, Matt. Um, somewhere around the 500 to 550 we're about 150 times smaller than Guernsey, 200 times smaller than Jersey. And so so how, really small. It's very small, very small, perfectly formed. Um, yeah. And how, how, when I said set of, own set of laws and own parliament, how is that made up? Who chooses that? Uh, well, it's done by universal suffrage uh, nowadays. Uh, we changed that system in 2008. So we're relatively new to democracy. Um, we have uh, currently 18 seats on our parliament. Um, we do, I have to admit, struggle to fill those. Um, and we have a, an odd system of uh, replenishing. So every two years, we uh, elect half the parliament for four years. Um, and are, do you have political parties? We're talking about with the situation in Guernsey and Jersey. No, n- none at all. It's, it's about issues, not about politics. Uh, and you don't have cars on the island, is that right? 
Uh, yeah, we don't have cars. It, it's just impractical to have cars here. Uh, it's only three and a half miles long by one and a half miles wide. It only takes 40 minutes to walk from one end to the other. So you're all, uh, you're all nice and fit. And what about, I asked James about the, uh, the, the, the tax haven issue. If anyone knows about Sark, that's probably one of the things they uh, talk about. What's, what is the position of, of tax on Sark? Well, we're certainly a low tax jurisdiction, but um, uh, with low taxes come almost no social um, state. So um, you don't get anything for being part of the community because you don't pay anything. So uh, you're very much left to your own devices. We have no welfare state. Um, the health service is almost entirely private, as in that you pay for what you, you get. Uh, so there's very little um, that is paid for by the state. Education um, is one aspect that is paid for. So it's universal free education for children up to the age of 16. Um, and uh, we do pay for a doctor and we do pay for administrative support. But um, uh, otherwise, it's parish council type uh, activities. So maintenance of roads, collection of rubbish uh, and all of that sort of thing. Um, uh, and uh, do you just finally, do you have the same issues we've been from Guernsey and Jersey of, of trying to uh, retain younger people? I suppose it's less of an issue if, you've got, if you haven't got uh, the sort of, as you just got, like the welfare state and try to find younger people to pay in for the older people. Is there a generational challenge? Yeah, I think we're probably um, more polarised than both the other islands uh, in that I think um, half our population is over the age of 60 or over the age of 65. And that presents us with real issues. Um, so if you if you can't sustain yourself um, with no welfare state to, to back you up, then really you have to consider whether Sark is the place to live. Uh, and that does present us with serious issues. Christopher, it's really good to speak to you. It's fascinating insight. Christopher Beaumont there, the uh, senior of Sark. Uh, we also heard from uh, James Faller, the editor of the Guernsey Press, and then on uh, Jersey, Fiona Potney, the deputy editor of the Ballywick Express, and Robert McRae, the deputy bailiff of Jersey, giving us an insight into uh, the politics of the Channel Islands. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.